Welcome to Episode 9 of the Yellow Ladybugs Podcast Series 4, Supporting Autistic Girls and Gender Diverse Students at School and Beyond. This podcast series is brought to you by the Victorian Department of Education and Training. In this episode, Katie Coolis, CEO of Yellow Ladybugs, speaks to renowned child psychiatrist Dr Alberto Veloso and explores regulations, ruptures and repairs, how to support our ladybugs when things get tough. Dr Alberto offers compassionate advice and practical strategies to empower parents and teachers to co-regulate when relationships rupture and how and when to reflect and repair. A special look into complex mental health challenges and how to cope when things get tough. Please note this episode does contain references to hospital stays, mental health, family violence, self-harm, intrusive thoughts and threats to harm. So let's get underway with episode nine. In the spirit of reconciliation, Yellow Ladybugs acknowledges the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to their elders past and present and extend their respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples today. Hi, I'm Katie Coolass from Yellow Ladybugs. Welcome to this in-depth interview with Dr. Alberto Veloso, where we will be focusing on advice for parents on how to understand our own body-brain connection, how this understanding can assist us to co-regulate, and how this can help us as parents to navigate the more complex mental health struggles that our autistic girls and gender-diverse young people may be experiencing. Welcome back to FIRST to Dr. Alberto Veloso. Dr. Alberto is a specialist child and family psychiatrist and general paediatrician who supports many autistic children and teens and their families. He leads the wonderful team at Relational Minds Child and Family Mental Health Clinic, and they support and empower young people and their parents and carers through connection and integrated care. Welcome back, Alberto. Thank you so much, Katie. Uh, it's always a pleasure be part of Yellow Ladybugs. We're very, very supportive of the mission and the work that you do. So it's Thank really you. wonderful to be here again. Thanks, Alberta. And it's really nice to have you here because we know you're a tremendous ally to the autistic community. And also, as you said, a close friend of Yellow Ladybugs, we know you share the huge worry about caring for our young people and their families. So thank you for being part of today's conversation. So we're going to jump straight into it. Um, we know that parents of autistic girls and gender diverse young people often find themselves navigating a really unique set of pe parental challenges, many of which are not always understood by others. Some of the additional demands include advocating for support, services, accommodations for our children, and frequently advocating to change the system. Add to this a frequent lack of understanding from the outside world and expectations to meet the demands of the neurotypical world, and it can easily become overwhelming, especially when our young people are struggling with their mental health. In addition, many neurodivergent children also have neurodivergent parents, whether they know it or not, and as a result, sensory sensitivities, masking, meltdowns, shutdowns, hyperempathy, Rejection, sensitivity and burnout can be experienced by both children and adults alike. So today we want to focus on supporting parents, teachers and their carers navigate some of these challenges and we're going to jump to question one. And I know we've previously spoken to you, Alberto, on the importance of relational safety and connection when supporting our young people and the effectiveness of strategies like PACE. And we're going to include links in the resource on this. And so we know this is a part of the larger paradigm shift in understanding behaviour that is informed by neuroscience. But we think it's worth revisiting one underlying aspect of this, and that is the importance of understanding our nervous system and the body-brain connection. And I'm curious, Alberto, if you could talk us through as parents and carers what we need to know about our nervous systems, especially in relation to managing our own emotions reactions and why it's important to understand in the context of supporting our ladybugs that is a long question Alberto I'm going to hand over to you it's a long question but an important but an important question Katie um and, and thank you for bringing this up because you know it it really it really connects to our work you know so so at Relation Minds we take pride in, in translating some of the science um and some of the evidence 
to help parents and carers understand their kids. And today your question is about understanding ourselves. So super duper important. Um, I guess the first place to start is you know, to, to, to remind ourselves again that um, our emotional regulation is a balance between emotional brain systems and logical or regular regulation brain systems. Um, those two have to connect. Um, our emotional systems are always going to be automatic. Um, and our regulation systems, we need to train. Um, and different, different, uh, genetic factors and different experiential factors are, are going to affect that. So we've heard a bit about, there's a couple of concepts that, that we've heard before. One of the thing, one of the concepts that we've, we've heard before is this thing that we call a window of tolerance. And it basically talks about, um, being in the regulated zone, not being too aroused or not being too under aroused as parents. And, and basically what that talks about is about being in the zone means we can be flexible, right? So um, Dan Siegel will, will also talk, talk about uh, the river of integration, you know, being in the middle and not being too chaotic or not being too rigid. So that, that, that's really important. But today I wanted to introduce, there's a, there's, there's a couple of concepts that I've been really thinking about, and I think it's really um crucial for parents to understand is that how do we stay regulated? We require certain brain systems to work together, right? To be able for us to be able to parent in the way that we that we want to, which is regulated and empathic, open and engaged. And I want to introduce to to, to our audience today a couple a couple of systems that 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 I think we need to be aware of to work on ourselves to make sure that these systems are functioning online. So the first system I want you to talk about, and this is this is um, something that Dan Hughes and John Bailey spoke about, and, and, and the Australian Childhood Foundation also um, spoke about last year, that the first system that I want you to be aware of is what we call the approach system, okay? And I think we'll probably provide some, some resources and documentation after this. But the, the approach system is mediated by a hormone called oxytocin, right? And what the oxytocin does is it primes a parent's brain to want to be near your child, to approach your child. So when you see a child, the way the parent-child relationship works is the parent has this desire to draw their child in towards them. So if we think about that, right, that's, that's kind of innate. It happens really naturally. What happens after months, weeks, years of a difficult relationship or a child that's fit, not fitting in? What do you notice? What do parents notice? That approach system starts to not work. So instead, uh, we don't have as much oxytocin. Instead, we want to avoid our child. We get this sense that we don't feel like we want to be with them anymore. And I think it's really, it's really important to notice that because it's something that makes us, might make us feel terrible as a parent, going, why do I not want to be with my kid? Like, it makes no sense. It's because after a period of time and maybe influenced by some of your genetic or some of your early childhood experience, that approach system of yours is now not working so well. Okay, that's the first system, the approach system. The second system I want to talk about is the reward system. Okay, we all hear about dopamine the neurotransmitter responsible for joy and drive and doing things. When we feel joy, we release dopamine. It makes us feel great. It's also released by relationships. When we feel relational joy, it's one of the most pleasurable feelings that we have. And that is meant to be one of the feelings that we have with our kids. Okay? But if our experience with our children is hurtful or difficult or scary, suddenly that reward system can be numbed, okay? Now, what are the clues to that? Some parents might find themselves that to feel any joy, they need to drink alcohol or they need to do something really huge, they need to get an adrenaline rush from somewhere. It tells you that there's something that's going on in your relational world that you need to work on because you're no longer feeling pleasure in your relationship with your child, okay? So the approach system, the reward system, both very closely related. The third system, right? This is all going to sort of come come together. It's what uh, Dan Hughes called child reading system, and that relates to our limbic system, 
our emotional brain that reads the cues from our child's verbal, nonverbal, their tone, their posture, right? So I don't know how many parents out there notice that when their child walks into the room, their body feels tense, right? Or we've had a parent that says, when my child walks into the room, I need to stand up and be ready because he might hit me. Okay? Now, so we, of course, associate these responses as part of our trauma response. But when that's happening to your child's presence, it's not something we often think about directly going, hey, I'm having this reaction, okay, to my child. My, my emotional brain is reading my child as dangerous or scary, which makes it really hard to be empathic, okay? There will be certain things, certain words that your child says, the way they look suddenly, right? So it's really important to notice that going, okay, because then because uh, that means what we need to do is we need to employ certain strategies or certain things that we can do to make sure that our defense system is calmed when our child walks in, and we actually need to go, okay, just because they are walk, they walk to the room doesn't mean I'm going to get hit. But our, our limbic system is going to try and predict that and protect that. So that the, what we call a child reading system is the third system that, that, that can be difficult. Linked to that is what we call the meaning-making system. Okay, the way our brain works is in what we call narratives, stories, words, but we think you know, the way we think is in stories. We talk to ourselves in words. And so what we have to do is sometimes our brain convinces us of certain narratives, right? For example, think about past relationships that, 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 that we may have had before, right? How many times did we used to convince ourselves that this, is, this relationship is great for me, even though someone else told us, huh, you should be ditching that bloke, <laughs> right? We tell ourselves, we tell, we, we create these stories. So, so that's how powerful our meaning-making system is. So if we take note of that, suddenly if we think about what are the words that we use to describe our child, okay? Because when we usually start off as parents and in, in the parent-child relationship, the words, we normally have positive words, hopeful words. But if you start to find yourself having these narratives that say things like, they do things purposely to annoy me, or are they trying to punish me, right? That makes no sense. That means that your meaning-making system is now biased towards the negative, okay? So you can see all of this comes together, right? The approach system, the reward system, and all, all of these systems, that, that child-reading system, they all come together to, go, to, to then paint this negative picture and this negative story, okay? And that's what we call the meaning-making system. Now, the last system that I want to talk about is our executive system, which we hear about a lot, okay? And so how many parents out there in carers who have had lots of struggles with their, with their young person's um, coping through life, suddenly you forget stuff. Suddenly you can't plan. Suddenly you, have, you really struggle with your own executive system. You're going, have I just suddenly developed ADHD, right? Or maybe you've had it the whole time, right? But it's one of the things that, that, that fails. Our executive system, even if well developed, right, can, can, can be something that can be something that can get really challenged. And if, because if you're functioning from your emotional brain a lot, um, that can be something that can, that can really struggle. So it's really important that parents are aware of these systems because if one, or more of these systems aren't working so well for you, it's going to make it really hard for you to stay in the zone. Okay, you're going to dysregulate, which means, you know, in the end, you end up in this conflict. You end up contributing to the problem, whether you liked it or not. Right? It didn't mean to, but suddenly you can't stay in the zone. Right? So these brain systems, funnily enough, also exists in our child. And what do we do? What do we teach all of our parents and all carers? How do we build regulation in your child? It's to promote mindfulness, promote safety systems, promote care for that child. What we need to do is hold up a mirror and do some of that for ourselves, right? Um, and and talk to our partners and talk to, to our care partners to say, okay, hey, guys, I need help, right? Because 
these systems aren't just going to come back online automatically. If you find that these systems aren't working, then you, you can't just wait. Like it's, it's not going to come back on its own. Yeah, and it's just going to get more difficult as as things progress, as you said, because the, you know, you start off as a parent with all these narratives and and confidence, and and it just change, you know, the situation wears you down, and it will just get harder. So the earlier you notice this, I definitely think that's a great advice that we need to address it. If any of these systems, wow, Alberto, that was just amazing explanation. I'm going to let that process and sink in for a while. Um, there was too many great points that I was jotting down for myself, and I'm sure others are at home too, because I haven't heard it quite described like that before. So it's just really powerful. And I know we'll dig into more specifics for those at home who have some questions around how do we actually recognize our own window of tolerance and how do we support ourselves through that. So I'm going to jump to the next question um, because we know schools' parents are often focused on fixing or managing the challenging behaviours they see in our neurodivergent young people. Um, so I know you spoke to us previously about the need to reframe the challenging behaviour as a signal of distressed nervous system and about the importance of connection and co-regulation. I'm just wondering if you can now talk to us in a little bit more depth about co-regulation and the concept of being I guess, the second brain for our dysregulated young people, particularly for parents who are tired, exhausted and burnt out as you've sort of just painted the picture there or maybe not working within a system as you've gone through there that's online. So we'd love to hear your thoughts on that. Yeah, so it goes back to that first question, doesn't it, exactly what you just said, that, you know, it, it's really difficult to co-regulate if you're not regulated, <laughs> right? So then what you're doing is, also dysregulating you you know sometimes we we um you know we talk about that that sometimes we can raise the arousal of our child just with our own anxiety right because you know it, it is the, the, there's a there's a concept in mental health that we call affect right which is this, this observed emotion that you don't even need to say right or, or or you might those of us might talk about um you know, we might hear that phrase, like you can feel the tension in the room, right? What is that? It's not magic, right? It's that there's something that our our, our um, reading system, our limbic system is, is, is noticing, okay? Um, and and it's nonverbal, it's very innate. And the amazing thing about it is we've had it from day dot. Okay, what we think this system is, is doing for us is actually help the, 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 you know, the 13 day old baby, or we've got a 13 day old baby right now. You know, it's, it's helping that baby to know what's going on in its world without any real understanding of it, right? This is amazing stuff that, that just innately belong inside a child's brain and they just, they just know it. The co-regulation is making the most of that. Okay, it's trying to make the most of the fact that you don't need to use words to teach a child that they're safe. Okay, now if you think about what that would mean, think about what you would have created for a baby. Right? If you're going to have, if you're going to be banging pots and pans for a baby, right, or having parents yelling in the background, that's not going to that's not going to lead to to regulation. Whereas, so if you think about, let's use the example of school, that if a child is dysregulating at school, and I know this is a challenge for, for, for our education partners, is you know, resources is always an issue, and, and, and the time that, that it takes to do this, and we'll talk about it in, in a bit more later on, I think. But if we notice that a child's dysregulating, right, like you said, we, and I'm, I'm hoping we've jumped this in enough times now, that this is not a child just choosing to misbehave. Right, that they're struggling with something, that their system is, is overwhelmed, right, and and that you know, and it's overwhelmed because the the the, the wiring in their brain in terms of reg, the regulation versus the regulating emotion systems is not as efficient as they need it to be. So they've become overwhelmed, and and the reason why we we, we say things like, "Well, they're just behaving that way," or "It's just behavior," is because we, as regulated, typical people don't seem to appreciate that that stimulus that they've had 
my, that should be overwhelming. We're like, well, why is that overwhelming? You just someone just took your lunch, or someone just took a bite, or someone just walked in front of you, or you know, because we are not seeing that as the fact that that child's brain is seeing what seems like a boring normal stimuli as threatening, right? Or some um, or some threat to the equilibrium. So. You know, if we take a step back and we think about the child, a neurodivergent child who's, whose um, experience of the world is one that they need to control. Right? So you know, we might talk about demand avoidance, for example. Demand avoidance is a classic example of a child that needs to control everything, otherwise it's not going to go well. So, if, so even small things can cause a big response. Okay. So what does that mean? So what that means is we need to appreciate that whatever it is, how small it may seem, there is a reason why that child is dysregulated. What we can do, first of all, is, well, our normal ways you go, why don't you talk to me? Right? We, now, we know that brain systems in charge of speech don't come online or, or, or go offline when we're dysregulated. Right? So it's going to be important to remember that. So then asking them questions, Talking to them is not going to be a helpful strategy. Okay, so it's going to be one of these things where we then go, okay, what tools do I have in my arsenal to try and help the child? Right? And and thankfully, and this is literally a, a one message that relates to mine. Right, you have the power to change things. You have the power to create a safe environment and a safe relationship with your child. Yes, they might take a long time. Yes, they might take a, a while to work out what, what those actual things are that you do. But you have that. And, and what you can do is to use your presence, your energy. This is why pace works so well, because playfulness, if you can manage it, it's like it's like an emotion with breath, right? It just, it just settles the arousal down. Because for some reason, I think human beings are just wired to calm ourselves when things are playful because things aren't so stressful, right? So by accepting that this child might be struggling with something, they can't tell you what it is, you don't know what it is, you don't know what the triggers are, right? It just is. And what we're going to do is to provide a calm space, to provide a calm space, to provide that, that pillar or... You know, you might think about other metaphors that, that, that we use in terms of, um, for example, think about when we're stressed, right? And when we talk about safety planning, right? One of the first steps about safety planning, one is you, if you're able to do something to calm yourself down, right? But the next step is if that, what you're doing doesn't work, have someone there. They don't have to talk to you. They don't have to suggest anything. They just have to be there. Because sometimes that's the step we forget, right? We forget step two, which is that just having a person there can help, right? In fact, if that person starts talking, suggesting stuff, that might actually make it worse. But if that person just sits there and says, "I'm here for you. I'm going to get you. I'm, I'm going to get you whatever you need, whether it's a glass of water or something else," then over time, suddenly that conversation might be able to grow because their brain starts to settle down. Their speech centers open up. Right? So it's about, about being there. That's literally what co-regulation is. The hardest part of co-regulation? Waiting. Right? Because we're anxious, we want things to get we want things to get better quicker. We're a teacher, I've got 24 other kids. I need this to I need this to get better now. <laughs> right? So that's where that, that's where the challenge is. So then we have to think about our system saying, okay, how do we set up a system so that someone can be there for that child and co-regulate them for as long as they need to? Yeah, my gosh, spot on. That was such good advice. And I think, um, you know, you touched on so many great points, especially around we need our, you know, we need to share our calm, not join their chaos is, I guess, what I use to help me, even when I doubt that this approach will work and sometimes I fall back into old patterns, which we'll talk about later. It always eventually does. It's like you've just got to trust it and be patient enough. Um, so, yeah, that's that was great advice, Alberto. So I think 
This will probably help us lead into these specific questions that we had shared from our community. One of the um, questions we had on co-regulation is that after there is a distressing situation with my child, I know the next steps are to reflect and repair. How do I reflect with my child even when I've given them enough time to process as no, as no matter how long that is, they still get triggered whenever we do reflect on it in the flight-fight response. So I'm curious on that reflect stage in this question. Yeah. So <clears throat> obviously reflect, reflection or that reflective state is where we want to get to, right? So what does that mean, right? So a reflective state means that we can think about the situation instead of just reacting to the emotions of it, right? So that, that's, you know, um, another phrase you might hear is, react less, reflect more, right? Which is actually a really good mantra for parents to have, right? I'm going to react less, reflect more on what's, got, on what's going on in the situation. But So if that's where we want our children to get to after an episode of dysregulation, right, we're waiting for quite a lot of, quite a lot of, of, of time for that arousal to come down, okay? Because what does it mean, right? So if we're going to be reflective, right? So let's go back to our brain systems that we talked about at the start, right? We we want our child to want to approach us, right? To be open to our influence, to be open to our presence, right? You know, maybe you know, maybe feeling pleasure in our presence might be a little bit too much to ask yet at that point, right? <clears throat> but we want our child's limbic reading system to not be on edge, to not see us as a threat when we're there, okay? So, you know, I can go on with the other systems, but what I'm trying to say is to get to a reflective state needs integration, okay, brain integration. Think about how good your child is at doing that when they're calm, <laughs> okay? Because if that's their baseline, that's where we expect them to get to, not because sometimes our uh, our definition and sometimes our behaviour support plans, uh, definition of reflect, reflective state is not, not appropriate, right? We're expecting too much from that child. Because maybe the best that we can do for our child, from get from our child at that point, right, is to stop reacting, right? We might have these expectations for them to be able to, to say what happened or say what they could have done better, right? But, you know, I think that's actually an unfair expectation, right? If we get to a point where your child's not reacting, we can move on to something else that's actually like part of our routine or you know, even better, something that we can feel pleasure about, right, which we can talk about, you know, in terms of repair, Um if that child then talks to you about expresses that reflective state three days later, I'd take that as a win, right? And it's going to be those moments where that co-regulation happens. We seem to be able to move on, right? And they don't they don't feel shame, right? Because our goal isn't for them to not feel shame, right? Because And sometimes asking them to reflect or expecting them to reflect too early actually shames them. Absolutely, because that leads into my next question because um, we had a question saying I'm interested in the repair stage and what that looks like, especially for a teen ladybug who is prone to fawning and often goes into a shame spiral. So, yeah, yeah I, I so, see what you're saying. So, yeah. so fawning is really tricky, right, because what does fawning mean? So when I, hear, when I notice that someone is fawning, I feel for that parent, right, but it means what they need to do is lots of observation, right? Lots of really getting to know their child, right? And and it's like it's literally like having a newborn, right? They can't tell you what you thought was working doesn't work, right? Or not today anyway, but seemed to work. What seemed to work yesterday, and or seems to work again today, but not yesterday. That's literally the same process when you've got someone who can't express to you in words. And, and, and someone who can't express to you in words means that getting to that that um, ideal state of the reflective state is too difficult for them to get to. Right? And that's something that we might need to build and teach them later. How do we find words for those things that happen? 
okay? And the process is exactly the same, right? That if you, you know, if you watch an episode of Bluey, right, and, and, and it's always at the end when the kids start to talk about stuff, I'm going, well, six minutes. Six minutes they got into the reflective state. When did, when did that ever happen to my kids? Right? Obviously they've caricatured, but that's kind of what but that's kind of what we're um what that's kind of what we're aiming for. That at some point they go through this stage where they just think, oh do you mean if I if I hadn't done that or do you think that's what happened? Right? And you go, Oh, right? But it's only when you give them that space, it's it's almost that when you stop expecting them to do it that they'll give it to you. Right? Because they realize that you're accepting them no matter what. Okay. So yeah. that is yeah, that is really to me, that's the key. That's the key to getting to that reflective mm -hmm. state. Um, knowing that you might stay in that reactive state for a long time. And if you can deal with that reactive state, I'd take that as a win. Yeah. Don't yeah. rush it. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And so the two big takeaways from that, I loved react less, reflect more. I love that. And lots of observation if you've got a fauna. Massive. And, and also from a repair perspective, Katie, yeah. um, think about what is it that we're repairing? Okay, so let's think about the concept of repair. And, and I think it's a real question from, from, from our audience yeah. um, that the reason why we need to repair is because there was a rupture. Okay, and what's the rupture? The rupture is in the relationship. Okay, so whatever the child did, they feel like mum's going to get disappointed with me or dad's going to get angry with me, right? And remember, they're not logical. They're rigid. They're going to think that mum's never going to love me again, right? Or they're going to send me away or, you know, or, or they're mm -hmm. going to leave me, yeah. right? So that's that's the cause of the rupture. What's the antidote to the rupture? Repair. What does repair look like? It's a rejoining. Okay, so if, so so if audience asking, what does repair look like? You know, especially with if you've got someone who fawns, you need to think, okay, what what does it look like to them for our relationship to rejoin again? Okay. Yeah. Now, right. So that's about that's about joining together to do an activity. That's joining. Even just being joining in the, in the same space, being able to share pleasure together will, will be some form of repair. Now, on that, I want us to think about, you know, different types of, you know, there's a complex term called intersubjectivity, right? So sometimes, right, all the best we can do is for parent and child to sit side by side, watch something else and go, huh, right? Uh, we, we feel pleasure together by watching that thing that's outside of us. That's an okay step because what we really want is for parent and child to be looking together and enjoying each other. But maybe that's too tough a task at that point. So we will accept enjoying something else outside of us side by side. Okay. Now that's the sign of repair. Okay. We now, our relationship is now starting to join. We're starting to heal that rupture. That's the definition of repair. So your task is going, okay, what's it going to take for my child to feel comfortable enough for us to join together in something again? Right. Yeah, wow. So many great light bulb moments there, Alberta. You're giving us too many. We're not going to know where to put the light bulb moment. Um, just so good. I'm going to have to go back and listen to that a few times. Um, just in terms of our next question, because it's sort of related in terms of we hear a lot that, you know, a common theme is when when we discuss behaviour is what to do when one parent is on board with co-regulation and relational safety and the other isn't. And I know in previous discussions we've had with you, you've talked about the importance of using, you know, the same curiosity and empathy approaches you use with your children to the parent that may be more distressed and not being able to co-regulate. But what message do you have this time directly to the parent or the person that is struggling with these concepts and holding on to possibly opposing beliefs or falling into old patterns, you know, how they were raised, for example? What's your thoughts on that one and message to them? Well, well a big challenge about that message is how do we get that to them because they're not probably watching this, <laughs> right? So... But this is how we all need to work together. Okay, so so it it is you know it, it's helpful to have one regulated parent. Okay, that's still better than no regulated parents, right? Um, what does that mean? What that means for us who is you know working with the other parent who's not quite on board with with a 
um, trauma-focused or accepting neurodivergent accepting approach is we might think about their brain system. Okay, well, maybe, maybe you know, we might we might go okay. Is this are they like this now because of everything that they're watching? And you know, for example, let's talk about the common examples, which is dads. All right, and the number of dads that I've spoken to, you know, you know, one of the things they say they say I hate how my child treats my partner. All right, it's not even about like I. You know, they struggle to even think about the child because they just can't stand how their partner's being treated. So it's kind of, oh, all right, think about it like that, right? So sometimes it's about accepting if there are reasons why that parent might be struggling to come on board, okay? Like you've said, maybe, so this dad in particular, for example, the one I thought about, he witnessed his dad do that to his mum. So to see his child doing that to his wife that's not on i can't move past that okay so that needs quite a bit of work right and you know and that might that bit of work might actually be a bit hard for the mum to do because they're all dealing with everything else so we might then need to think about hey would you be open to thinking about you know having a conversation with someone about what's going on for your child I find that these conversations about brains really help these kinds of parents because then they start to go, okay, you mean that they can't help it? Like this, this is literally their brain, right? Yeah. And that's why we have this goal of translating the science because it makes such a big difference to, to, to help that, that parent go, hey, you know, there is, you know, there's actually scientific explanations for what our child's doing, right? Um, and, and then if we actually sit down and think about it, doesn't matter what you do, they're still going to do the same thing because that's where the development of that. Right. So, you know, uh, the, the message is, is, is about acceptance. If I, was, if I was able to speak, if I was able to speak to um, directly to that parent who's struggling to get on board, you know, it would be, hey, let's have a yarn, right? And let's understand your child. The, the phrase I like to use is, it doesn't make sense why they'd be choosing to do this. It's not doesn't seem to be beneficial for them, or us, or anyone. So, do we have a think about why are they doing this? Does that make no sense? Yeah, it's such a good point to help them think, begin the process of curiosity. And I think that that's the best thing I've learned from you is being curious about why, rather than just making assumptions. So. Very good point. Thank you so much um, for that answer. I'm sure many are nodding along at home going, yep, I know someone like that. Even grandparents, for example, you know, it's hard when we are facing this. So we're going to shift gears now um, and ask you how this is all linked to mental health because many parents who feel they have developed strong coping and co-regulation skills under, you know, typical circumstances, find that they struggle so much and a lot is lost when it comes to supporting their neurodivergent children through the more complex mental health challenges as they get older. It can be so difficult to navigate this, especially when you are already exhausted and depleted from all the years of fighting the system and that's contributing to your child's poor mental health, your own poor mental health. So what advice do you have for parents who are riding the mental health crisis wave with their child? Yeah, it's such a hard question, um, Katie. I think, you know, and, and, but, you know, we're, we're, we're going to finish strong, aren't we? Um, what we're going to do is let's think about, let's let's think back on all the comments that we read on on social right about the criticisms of the mental health system how we feel like we needed help and we we felt abandoned we just got we just got sent home we didn't feel heard right i think even those who are working in the system are open enough to 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 um acknowledging that our system is hurting right that it's under resourced there hasn't been enough planning to go into it, which is why we had a Royal Commission, right? And then the rolling out of those recommendations, taking time, right? It takes time to plan. That's how, that's how far back 
we have to come from, right? There's yeah. multiple reasons for that, which we don't need to get into. There's lots of philosophical reasons and historical reasons in psychiatry and mental health and, and what have you. But what's important is let's understand what the role of the mental health system is for us now as it stands, okay? And, um, and make sure that our expectations of the mental health system are kind of appropriate. Right? Because yes, we would love a mental system that's going to be able to say, hey, whenever you need it, you can be here and you're going to be safe and we'll, and, you know, we'll work with you to that point. That doesn't happen. Right? We know that, that's, that that doesn't happen. Right? And let, we might touch on a certain point here, which is um, what the role of hospitals are right? and, and, and admissions and inpatient units. Okay, because that's that that tends to be one of you know that's that's one aspect of it. There's another aspect of it in terms of community care. But if we think about the mental about the mental health system, right? So most inpatient units are really about supporting just the pointy end of that crisis. Okay, um, it's for parents who say, "I'm not taking my child home because I don't feel safe." Right. It's for um, children who whose brain systems are so dysregulated, are so disintegrated, right, that they can't even put two words together, right, or put two logical thoughts together, okay? Now, what do you notice? You go into hospital, sometimes they wait because sometimes that episode of dysregulation settles down, right? So, and by the time you get to, there's you know, probably 90% of the people who get to ED, by the time you get to ED, you know, that your child made, made you a liar, right? You know, they, they, you know, they want to go home or things don't, you know, not, a, there's obviously not all of those, not all of those cases are like that, but there's many, many cases that are a bit like that. And so mental health systems um, and mental health assessments and mental health teams will often say, let's see what we can do to try and avoid bringing you into hospital. Why? Why is this reason to avoid going to the hospital, right? It's not just about resources. Right? Hospitals are a place that can cause harm. Right? And, and look, you know, and, and, and I've, I've worked in them many, many times. I've run a unit myself. It's, it's actually part of, part of the risk assessment for the hospital or for an inpatient unit is to say, is this actually going to be helpful for that child or uh, is that child potentially going to get worse by coming in here? What are the risks? One, being traumatised by other people who are really, really unwell in there as well. Maybe just as unwell. I mean, if you've got two really unwell people, I'd rather not have both of them in the same ward. Right? Um, is it unlucky that you came second? Maybe. Right? But there are, there are certain risks that can, that, that, that can happen in, in patient units. But that doesn't mean, you know, and I'm, and I'm addressing that firstly, but there are benefits. Right. So, what would be a reason? But I think it's important for for parents to be able to articulate that. Right. What are the reasons that you'd need to be that that you would like your child to stay in hospital? Okay. One, you need a rest. There is no one else that can care for this child. Right. I, you know, I mean, we need to be careful about what things we say, but 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 we have to be honest that I'm I'm at the end. I can't do it. I'm I'm literally at breaking point. I might do something that will make the problem worse. That's okay to say that. Okay. That's a tough challenge to be able to say that because, you know, we, we hold ourselves to, to a high standard. Um, but that's what, that, but that's one of the reasons. The other, another reason is my child is showing these symptoms that we don't understand. They seem to be new. Okay. They seem to be talking to themselves. And so someone, and I'll address that specifically, these questions of, of hallucinations. Not all hallucinations mean schizophrenia, okay? So one of the ways to think about hallucinations is it, the hallucinations can occur at the extreme end of arousal. Your brain's really dysregulated, your brain's really disconnected, and your brain's now interpreting all sorts of things as if they're real, right? And even, and even activating parts of your brain to, to perceive stimuli even though there isn't there, right? And, and we know that that's related to the emotional system because hallucinations and voices, for example, are always negative, right? Generally, with most of our presentations, 
you, you don't hear you don't hear a child that comes in with a voice that says, "You're amazing. Keep going. You're doing such a great job." No one ever says no one ever says that. They say, "Go and kill yourself." Right. So, so we know that it's related to that negative arousal. We know that that that's related to the unregulated emotional system. But sometimes it can be bad enough that they you know they 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 lose their train of thought, that they can't think straight. And then if they start, if some of their thoughts start to become more risky, like I need to protect myself because mum and dad are about to kill me, so I need to keep a knife under my bed. Okay, and that that's different. Right? So so you know, so so one is is I can't do this anymore, I, I need some help. Two is if the symptoms are different, right? And and I'd like someone to observe them to see if this is something else. The third is I'm really worried about the risky thoughts or the risk of these. Okay, so they, they, they're the main reasons why, why you come to hospital. Now, the other thing is it's also um, important to accept that um, it may not be for weeks, right? Like, you know, we need to be realistic about it because what, 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 what we know is that when kids stay in hospitals for a long time, they find it really hard to reintegrate. So you've now got the whole new task of reintegrating. So you're actually better off having this hospital system or mental health system as an ally that you have for a couple of days. Um, and if and whether that's the hospital or whether that's a community team that comes and, and rings you and checks on you every day or might even come out and see you the next day, right? It's about knowing that, you know, that there's observation happening and, and that's the role of that's the role of the mental health system. It has to be in partnership, but it's tricky because when our systems are failing as parents, you know what we need? We need someone to help. We need someone to say, let's, let's, let's package this up. We're going to be okay. Right? Sometimes the way our mental health system responds to us doesn't always give us that message. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that is important to point out because it's the realistic situation for so many of us. And I guess that's why it's so important to educate yourself as a parent what to do in a mental health crisis and who you can lean into for support if you can, um, not just, you know, have a few different areas. And we've got a resource that we'll have as a um, link to this because it talks about um, what to do in a mental health crisis, the life cycle of the crisis event, because often as parents you think this is going to last forever. You don't realise that it can come in waves, and that's scary for us to understand. So educating yourself on that as well and as a guide to presenting at emergency and also managing a mental health crisis at home is super important as well. But, yeah, so we'll have a link to that resource for everyone at home to really read up on that when you've got the energy to do so, when you're not in crisis, so you can prepare yourself if you are a family that may be experiencing this in the future. But just to finish up on this topic, you had some great advice around what parents can do to help themselves advocate if they are going through this crisis and they need the words to help them, you know, get that support. What's your key advice for that? Yeah, so... Um, it does take a bit of honesty for ourselves, right? And, and you know, we kind of need to regulate our own feelings of shame, right? Because, because this is, this is where things can, can really escalate quickly. Because one is because if we don't get, if we start to hear words or, or our, you know, our, our meaning system or our emotional reading system is starting to detect it or I don't think they're really listening to me, what can happen is we can dysregulate. Okay, so number one is we need to be aware that we need to be advocates and we can't advocate unless we're in the zone. Okay, unless and unless we regulate unless we regulate ourselves. And a bit like, you know, look, it's really hard because you know it's our child, we're really worried about them, um, and you know, our house is in chaos, all the relationships that are, are affected. Really, really hard. Well, effectively what we're trying to do is you're going to a service to go, hey, what can you offer me? Right? What things can you offer me to help me with my problem? Okay, because if we get to a state where we we're dysregulated and we say, "I can't do this anymore. I need to dump this problem at your doorstep," right? That that's that's a problem that the service can't do anything with, right? 
So that makes it really difficult. Okay, so so one is to be regulated and to go, hey, I'm I'm happy to, t- to to keep responsibility for my child, but let me tell this to you directly. I don't feel safe in my house right now. I don't think my home is safe at this. It might be by the morning, right? Because I'm going to go and do a few things to try and fix that that bit, but it won't be right now. Okay, so we, we need to make it. We need to make it really, really, really clear to say, what can you suggest to me? Because things are not safe right now, right? And it doesn't mean it doesn't have to be that they get admitted. It can be a medication to type you over to tide you over for the night, right? It can be other. It can be a visit the next day. It can be a few things right, that, that 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 we can that we can do because we know that this is not a problem that's going to get fixed immediately and it probably won't get fixed even if you get into the hospital okay so number one is don't be afraid to say i can't do this i don't feel safe i need some other suggestion okay um and then the second thing is like we talked about before that if you notice things that are different or new ask for an opinion you're going hey i just want an opinion on this because this looks different i know my child Right? Help me to understand what this is. Right? Um, you know, it does. It does require it does require a regular executive system to be working. And if it doesn't, then we might need to put a hand up and go, hey, can I I might ring someone to come with me? Because I'm probably gonna lose it. <laughs> right? You know, so I need someone. Remember we talked about before about that that co-regulating partner? Sometimes it might not be your partner. <laughs> It might be a friend. It might be someone else. If that, you know, and hopefully that should be some that that, that could be a role that um, someone in the mental health service could do. Sometimes that doesn't happen, unfortunately. But the idea is we can co-regulate each other. Going, hey, okay, we'll, we'll think through this. Right, we'll come up with something. It might not be an admission, but it might be. It'll be something. Yeah, thank you so much. Um, such a good point. And I really recommend um, when parents are in a calm place to write a few of those statements down so that when you are in the heat of the moment, you've got them on your notes on your phone to help you find the words you might be struggling with. I know that's always helped me. Um, thank you, Alberto. So we've got just a couple more minutes and we're doing really well for time. We've had so much covered already today. I'm just curious um, if you've got any thoughts on this last question and, and it's okay if you've got any other random thoughts you can add in. But um, we know that there's been a recent inquiry into school refusal or school can't. Um, obviously, we prefer that term. But what is going on in our children's brains when they can't go to school? Um, and what do parents and teachers need to understand if you can try and sum up maybe your most important point with that? Yeah, huge problem, isn't it? Um, really, really difficult because why, you know, our kids are meant to be at school. If they're not at school, then we have to be at home, right? So we also can't be at work, right? Um, so there are multiple factors that make um, school cart a really, really difficult situation, okay? But, right, all of those other factors are other factors, okay? At the end of the day, you have a child who doesn't feel safe in that school environment. Now, we might want to think about the pattern. Did my child used to enjoy school and now no, they don't, right? Or has my child never enjoyed school, right? And it's always been a struggle and it's just been escalating, 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 so now they're like, no. Right, and I'm going to fight you to the death if you make me. Right? Very important, very important patterns to know because if you have a child who's been struggling through school, then maybe school's not for them. Right? Maybe, maybe um, there's things that have happened in the development. For example, they might have a learning disability. Right? And maybe us trying to push that school that way of learning doesn't work for them. And so they've just got to the point going, Mum, I've been doing this for you for, for six years now. I refuse to. Right? Now, that child, but also more importantly, the child who used to go to school and now doesn't, right? then that the one sort of that there's been a change, then that then lets us think, okay, what, what's the change? Why is this school suddenly less safe? 
right? Why has their approach system shut down about school? Now, what does that mean? It means that the heckles are up every time you talk about school, right? And you can test it if you want, but you can see, even if your child agrees to come with you in a car, you'll see the panic increase as you get closer. You're going, they're not making that up, right? There's something about it, right? But, and unfortunately, whether you're neurodivergent or not, even harder than you are neurodivergent, is you can't just say, suck it up, princess. Okay, just we all we all have to do things we don't want to do. Right? Try that. See how that, see how that works. <laughs> right? It doesn't work because they've got a brain that needs to be in control. Okay? And the more you try, the more your relationship gets damaged. Okay, so there's a couple of things that I want to say. The first thing is your relationship is more important than school. Okay? If trying to get your kid to school is going to damage relationships, it's not worth it. Honestly, right? Um, and you will just traumatize your child. Okay. So start from your accepting relationship. Start to go, okay, well, if that's not how you're going to learn, then let's learn another way. Yes, it takes resources. Yes, it takes your partner to come on board. Yes, it takes some support from your teachers and hopefully the school not judging you. All right. There's lots of advocacy that, that needs to go on there, but you must. You go, no, nah, I'm not going to ruin my relationship. I'm not going to ruin my child's emotions just to get them to school. All right, that's the first one. The second one is coming away from school is not the end of the world. Okay, we used to have this belief that if you don't just keep pushing through, you're never going to be able to come back. I totally don't believe that. I see many, many kids who, and the way I understand it, if it's like they come out of school and whatever it was that was causing their arousal to go up there, it's like their brain starts to give, it's like they give their brain a time to heal. And the number of kids who actually a year later say, I want to go back to school, you know, are you sure? Right? Yeah, I do. Because I'm bored at home. Right? And you're going, oh, oh, well, there you go. Right? It's not the end of the world. It's about doing what it takes to help your child feel safe. Right? If we can do that at school, then absolutely that's better. Right? Because then, you know, because then they keep progressing, they might stay with the same group of friends. But if those group of friends are the reason why they don't want to go, then maybe, you know, maybe, maybe that's not such a bad thing. All right. So your relationship is number one. Coming away from school is not such a big deal. Okay, it's not the end of the world, right? And it, so, and, and obviously, there's variations in terms of partial schooling. Give it time, right? Accept your child's perspective, right? But it doesn't mean that when they say I want to move to school, it doesn't mean you jump on it straight away, right? But that doesn't mean you don't listen. It means let's explore that, but let's give it time. Okay, because sometimes the nature of um, kids' relationships, there's lots of these roller coasters, and guess what? Three weeks later, oh, um, we're friends again. <laughs> right? I mean, I actually feel okay about going back again. You're going, oh my god, how did we change schools last week? That's so true. And sometimes we don't realize we can give it time. Like I didn't realize that you could just take three months off for mental health from school. I thought that there was this big authority coming to get me as a parent and it just made such a difference. So, yeah, it's really good to understand that you can actually make choices for your child. Um, was there a force to that? Because I think I might have. Was it? No, no, no. No, yeah. Well, look, I will add a force. Yeah. That you understand. Mm-hmm. Um, and, the fourth, and the fourth brings us back to the start is that you know, think about our own system. Okay, because if you're going to have your child at home because you need to give them a break, but at the same time you're going to get annoyed at them for being at home, that's not going to work. Okay, you have to be mindful of your systems, mindful of yourself, make sure you have enough help, right? Don't sweat the medium stuff, okay? <laughs> right? Oh, that's so true. <laughs> it's not just the small stuff. You can't sweat the medium stuff yeah. even because... I'm at the big stuff. Yeah. I'm at the big stuff. <laughs> 
Yeah. <laughs> so look after, know yourself and look after yourself. Yeah. No, such good advice, Alberto. Um, that, so, sorry to throw that last minute random question at you, but it's so topical right now and you've answered it masterfully, as I would expect. And honestly, there's so many great themes throughout all your answers. Obviously, curiosity is a huge one, but knowing that we as parents and teachers have the power within us to really make a difference and questioning and observing ourselves and going in and doing the work for ourselves is actually part of the biggest salute part of the solution and um, you've answered all the questions beautifully thank you so much for joining us today very grateful um, to you and the relational minds team for lending us you today and yeah, yeah you're, you're very welcome <laughs> and thank you and we'll see you at day three in person Thank you for joining us for Episode 9 of the podcast series taken from the Supporting Autistic Girls and Gender Diverse Students at School and Beyond Conference powered by the Yellow Ladybugs in 2023. Please share what you have learned with your community. We have attached to this podcast resources for further information. Join us for the final episode in this series where we will explore supporting parents and children to advocate for themselves. We'll be joined by Karen Dimmick, Sarah Hayden and Shanae Mabotso-Russell. We look forward to you joining us then.